But today we finish our study in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. It's an interesting passage. And uh, when I first read it, you might not see the theme of freedom. But I'm going to show you today how the theme of freedom comes into this passage. So let's stand together in respect for God's word. 1 John 5, beginning of verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, who's that? Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we ask now that you would anoint your word. I yield my life to you. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. I pray today that you would bring salvation to the lost, healing to the hurting and the sick, deliverance to the demonized, strength to the weak, and the equipping of the saints for works of service for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, on this July 4th weekend, as we celebrate our country's independence and freedom that we have as a nation, it's a reminder that more important than that is the freedom we have in Jesus. Jesus said he came to set the captives free. Galatians says, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And on and on, the Bible talks about the freedom that you and I can have, freedom from sin, freedom from temptation, freedom from Satan, freedom from eternal death, all kinds of freedoms that Jesus offers. And today I want to point out five ways from this passage in which we have freedom in Christ. Now, this is if you're saved. If you're not saved today, you don't have freedom, but you can today. Maybe you already got that freedom in, 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 the, in the response already, but if not, today you can have that freedom. And I'll explain what that means. It doesn't mean that you have a, a, a life free of all struggles and problems and challenges, not at all, but it means that you can have freedom, you can have victory because of what Jesus Christ accomplished. So the first is this, freedom in praying for others. Now he begins this section of, of scripture right after what we talked about last week. Remember we talked about prayer last week. So right on the heels, of, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears. And if you know that he hears, you know that you have the request ask of, of him. And we talked last week about the effectiveness in prayer. And so right on the heels of that, he goes into this section, if you see your brother committing a sin not leading to death, ask God, and God will give him life. There's freedom in that. How is there freedom in that? Because here's what we do. We see a person committing sin. We see a person straying, and what do we do? We gossip about them. 
We post things so, so subtle on social media about them. But what does this passage say you should do? If you see a brother or a sister committing sin, straying, getting out of the will of God, you pray. You take them to the throne of God. You cry out to God to open the eyes of their heart, to change them, to move in them. You intercede, and there's a promise here. When you do that, God will give them life. What a promise. There's freedom realizing I can't change that person. And this goes beyond just that person that you see committing a sin. How about our government? (laughs) When they do things that we don't like, when's the last time you prayed for your government leaders versus complain about them? How about your spouse? When they don't treat you like you think you deserve to be treated, what's your response? Is it prayer How about your boss at work and you have struggles there, any relationship for that matter? This passage calls us to pray. And what a promise. Ask God and he will move because prayer unleashes the presence and the power of God in this mysterious way. I cannot fully explain it, but it's true. It's biblical. There's something about prayer. When we get on our knees, we humble ourselves. We say, God, I can't change this person. God, I'm frustrated here. So first, a lot of times he has to do a work in us and our attitude toward that person, but we cry out. We bind the evil one. We ask God to open the eyes of their heart, soften their spirit, do a mighty work in their life. We cry out to God. He hears, he answers, and he does amazing things. And so that's the first area that we see freedom today. Second is this, freedom in knowing our identity. Oh, how this book has emphasized our identity in Christ, what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Who are we in Christ? And I want you to to just look at all the parts of this passage that deal with identity. We know that everyone who has been born of God, I love that phrase. And then down at the end, he says, little children, both a reference to being a child of God. Now, we are born physically in the image of God. We are created in the image of God in our mother's womb. Hello. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in your mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, it says, I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah, even before you were born. Listen, that's not a piece of tissue in that woman. That's not just a fetus that can be discarded if we don't want it. Hello. You're created in the image of God in your mother's womb with a heartbeat, fingernails, toes, lungs, liver, and blood, and a distinct DNA. It's not my body, my choice. Hello. That's a distinct body with a distinct DNA that's drawing life from the mother, but it is a unique, created in the image of God, person. Not to be discarded because we don't want it. Now that's physical birth. But this passage is talking about spiritual rebirth. Because when we're born physically into this world, we're born with a sin nature. The Bible says in Romans that we receive the Adamic nature. We are born sinful, separated from God, going our own way. 
doing our own thing. But when we realize that we are sinners, that there is no hope for forgiveness outside of the cross of Jesus, and we realize that Jesus Christ loved me so much that he came to earth, took on flesh and blood, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and he shed his blood, and he died not for his own sin, for he was sinless. He died for your sin and mine. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20 says. He died, he rose again, he shed his blood so that I could be forgiven and made righteous in his sight. At the moment that I realize that I am separated from him due to my sin, that Christ died for that sin, I turn, that's called repentance, I turn from my sin, I put my trust in Christ alone, and at that moment, the Bible says, we are born again. Your spirit goes from death to life. You go from a sinner to a saint. You receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. You become a child of the living God. You're declared righteous in His sight. You are loved, accepted, and valued because you are born again by the Spirit of the living God. That's your new identity. Hallelujah. There's freedom in that, knowing who you are. Where do you get your sense of worth and value? You get your sense of worth and value by your human, earthly accomplishments, by what people think of you, by how many followers you have on social media, how many people liked your post. Is that where you get your identity? Or do you get your identity from something that is unchangeable and eternal and settled in heaven, and that is your identity in Jesus Christ? Hallelujah. That's what he's calling us to. You are born of God. Now, we'll get to this a little later, but that's what motivates us to not keep on sinning. You don't stop sinning to get a new identity. But because you have a new identity, you don't want to sin anymore. He changes your desire. He changes what you want to do. Because you're righteous, you want to live righteous. Because you're holy, you want to live holy. Because you're a saint, you want to accurately represent the one who died and gave his life for you. I love the story of Alexander the Great. He had a soldier in, the, in his army that was not acting bravely in battle. When he should have been pressing ahead, he was lingering behind. The great general approached him and asked, What is your name, soldier? The man replied, My name, sir, is Alexander. Same as his general. The general looked him straight in the eye and said firmly, Soldier, get in there and fight or change your name. What is our name? Child of God, saint, righteous, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God. That's your identity. That's the essence of your being. And there's freedom in knowing who you are. Then he says, he who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him. Listen, part of your identity is today that Jesus Christ, because you're his son, you're his daughter, he protects you. That doesn't mean he protects you from, from difficulty because he said in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But he, what he does is he protects you from death, he protects you from hell, he protects you from the condemnation of the enemy because you're righteous in Christ, he protects you from attacks that can, that can take you southward because you can put your trust in him. You have his protection. He's your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He protects you. He fights for you when you put your trust in him. And then this phrase, look at this. 
and we are in him. Say in him. Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. He used that phrase in him or in Christ 143 times. It's used 180 times in all of the New Testament. Do you think God is trying to tell us something? I want you to know, sister and brother, that you are in me and I am in you. And that It's used interchangeably. We are in Him. He is in us. Our identity is intimately and intricately connected. This is that abiding thing that, that my ultimate identity is in Christ and He lives in me. He calls me a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I've said this a few weeks ago. It hit me as firmly as never before that God not only loves you, He likes you. Because you live with somebody you like when you have a choice, and he does. You move in with the people you like. If you get to choose your roommates, now some people don't get to choose their roommates. They come to Georgia, they're a freshman, they get stuck with whatever roommate they get. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not. I've been there, done that, had that happen when I was at Georgia. But when you can choose your roommate, you choose who you want to live with. It's people you like, you love hanging out with, you do a lot of things together. And God chose, listen, if you're in Him, He chose to live inside of you. Your body, the Bible says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's your identity. That's the essence of who you are. Now, Neil Anderson in his book, Victory Over the Darkness, has a great quote. He says, no one can consistently behave in a manner inconsistent with the way he perceives himself. So if you just say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a no good, low down you know, but God loves me, but you're really focused more on, on, on the other stuff, then you're not going to live a godly, righteous, victorious, freedom-filled life. And so what he's saying here, if you want to live consistently in line with the Word of God, you've got to know who you are. And this is why the Bible would say 180 times, you're in Him, you're in Him, you're in Him. So my question today is, have you been born again? You know that you know that you know today that you are a saved, born-again child of the living God because you have repented of your sins, put your faith and trust in Christ alone. What are you trusting in today to make you acceptable to God? And if it's anything other than Jesus, then you're putting trust in the wrong thing. You need to repent of that, change your mind, change your thinking, change your will, and put your trust in Christ alone receive Christ in your life, and the Bible says at that moment, in an instant, you are born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. You're given a new nature. You're given a new identity. You're given a new purpose. You're given a new calling. Identity in Christ. Such freedom there, beloved. Now, we realize that in this thing called living for Jesus, following Jesus, we're in a battle, aren't we? 1 Peter 5, be sober, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We are in a battle, it's serious stuff. So the third area in which we can have freedom based on this passage is realizing Satan's limitations. I want you to see what this says about spiritual warfare. And beloved, this is important because many today have an imbalanced understanding of spiritual warfare on one side or the other. It seems that some give Satan too much attention, and then others don't give him any attention at all. The Bible says you need to be alert, you need to be informed, be not ignorant of his devices, but don't cower, don't fear if you're walking with the Lord. So first of all, I want you to notice that 
what it says about his power because it's pretty significant. Look down here. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's pretty serious, isn't it? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You just turn on your TV every day and scroll news and look at what's happening in our culture. It's no surprise, is it, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? You say, man, that's kind of scary. I'm kind of intimidated. I'm like overwhelmed when I see that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, that's Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers that they see not the light of the glory of the gospel. We are in a battle. If you don't realize that you're in a spiritual battle, then you're probably not walking with Jesus. Because the closer you get to the Lord, the more you can expect opposition from the enemy. But the more you know your identity in Christ, the less you're intimidated by those attacks of the enemy. And so there's this interesting balance. You've got to be sober, alert, recognize the power of the evil one, Satan and demons. It's important to understand those. You talk, about, you talk to anybody, Brandon, when you were in, in, in combat, how important is it that you understand the enemy? Yes. You know whether they have an air assault, whether they have a ground assault, what the strength of their troops, the kind of weapons they use. That's important, right? But you don't focus so much on them that you forget what you have. So balance, right? It's not an either or, it's a both and. Same in our battle with the enemy. Satan and demons. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this phrase, great, this is a good example of good biblical, how you treat Scripture. You can take a verse or a phrase like this one. The evil one does not touch him. Oh, look at that. So he who is born of God, that's, that's Jesus, protects us, and the evil one can't touch me. If you just take that one little phrase, you carve it out, you cut it out of the context, then you could conclude wrongly, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm free from any attacks influence of the evil one. Satan can't touch me, it says right there in the Bible. What do you mean we're still in a battle? What do you mean we're still under attack? Wait, it says in my Bible that Jesus protects me and, 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 and he can't touch me. Context, context, context. The way to properly interpret Scripture is always the context. Oh, let's look at... First of all, two things key here, context and the meaning of the Greek word translated touch. First of all, the meaning of the word translated touch is adhere to, attach to. Magnet attaches to. This magnet is up here right now. It just attached to the pulpit. The other key thing in this context is the phrase right above it. Does not keep on sinning. <laughs> so if you don't sin, he can't attach himself to you. There it is right there, clear as a bell. I just cleared it up, right? Doesn't mean he can't attack. Doesn't mean he can't tempt. Now, one of the things interesting about two pieces of magnet is if you do this, you know that feeling when they, they, you can't attach these two. I don't know who can explain this, you know, the whole, Scott, can you explain this? Isn't there something, what's the term where the, same, say again, opposite poles, that's it. 
So all I got to do is switch this around. They attach. But when I'm doing this, you actually, it's cool to feel that. You just feel it repelling. If you're walking with Jesus, if you're believing the word, if you're walking by faith, listen, he can attack. He can tempt. But you do like Jesus. It is written. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. He can try to bring up your old sins and condemn you and say, how can you call yourself a Christian? Look at all this stuff you've done. But if you know the word and you stand in your righteousness in Christ and your identity in Christ, guess what? He can't attach himself. Remember we talked a few weeks ago, Satan works on a legal system. Ephesians 4, 27. Don't give him a place. That means real estate. It literally means real estate. You, he can never indwell your house, but if you allow him on your property and you give in to sin repeatedly, then a toehold becomes a foothold, becomes a stronghold. But if you resist him, firm in your faith, if you submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee. But otherwise, he can attach. He can influence you if you give in. You don't take your thoughts captive. If you give in to temptation and sin and don't repent. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Even when you give him place, you do fall. If you quickly bring it to the cross, confess that sin to God, repent of it, then you release the grip that he had. The gospel is so good for salvation, for identity, for our righteousness, and when we fall, which we will, we quickly repent, and we're right back under the righteousness that we have as his child. So that's the explanation of what it means that he cannot touch you. The fourth area, buckle your seatbelts. If you don't like to be told things in our culture that are against the word of God, then this is not the church to come to. But we always seek to... to to bring truth and grace. Listen, whenever we proclaim truth here from the Word of God, and it's hard to receive because it goes against our culture, it goes against what some of your family members are believing. It's never to condemn or put your face in it or to rub your back in it. It's because it's the truth that sets us free. And sometimes we have to recognize truth and the seriousness of sin so that we can repent of it and go to the truth of the grace of the cross. The fourth area of freedom today is this, standing in the truth. Say, where do you get that? Oh, it's all over this. Look at this. We know that the Son of God has come. Isn't that good news? And has given us understanding. Isn't that good news? God gives you understanding. He opens your mind and gives you the ability to see things as they really are. Not like culture says, not like your neighbor says, not like your professor may say, not like social media says, but you, he gives you understanding into what is really true. And then look at how many times he repeats truth. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, <laughs> in his son Jesus Christ, he's the true God. You think he's trying to say something here? Remember the purpose of this book. He's countering false teachings. He's countering false beliefs about Jesus. He's coming against things in that culture. They didn't believe that Jesus really came in the flesh because flesh and spirit can't be both positive. They can't be both righteous. There, there were those that said he didn't really come in the flesh. 
You don't really need to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. There are all these false beliefs about Jesus and, and, and eternal life. Has it changed any? <laughs> Have we gotten better as a world? Unfortunately not. Because there's an enemy. And the one thing he will definitely attack is the identity of God, the identity of Jesus, the blood atonement, and your identity. How applicable is this today? Jesus is the true God. He gives us understanding. Now, before I hit on a couple issues that might make you cringe a little, I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you tell me if you think we might be experiencing this today. 2 Timothy 4, Paul is writing to a young pastor, giving him instruction about things he could expect. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the, listening to the, and wander off into myths. Wander off, wander off into myths. They were, they were believing, they were staying in the truth, they, they were spending time with God every day, they were in a good Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church, but they wandered off. And then they started believing this and that and the other, and so sad. Don't be one of those. He says this is what's going to happen as the return of Christ gets closer. Folks, we are seeing today churches teaching and believing things that would have never been imaginable 50 years ago, 60 years ago, especially 2,000 years ago. Don't let me sin, Lord. Please don't let me sin as I cover this. Many today who don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God universalism yet jesus said i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me he's the only way to god because he's the only one who paid the sin price only by his blood can you be forgiven many today who believe you can be saved by good works and yet ephesians 2 says it's not by works but by his grace alone if your good works could get you to salvation jesus didn't need to die Many today that believe, despite what the Word teaches, that premarital sex is okay, adultery is okay, homosexuality is okay, pornography is okay, and yet God's Word is very clear on all of those. Those are sins. Many today who think that abortion is acceptable. God's Word and truth is that the unborn is a human to take that life as murder. Can it be forgiven? Absolutely. Can it be healed? Absolutely but not until it's recognized as sin. You know, we're afraid today to celebrate this Supreme Court ruling. Well, we can't really get too excited about that. Saving millions of lives? We shouldn't get excited about that because we're afraid we might offend somebody? Last I checked, when... David killed Goliath and chopped off his head. The people of Israel rejoiced. 
But today you can't really celebrate the Supreme Court ruling. What we have today is sissified Christianity. Many today think that marriage can be with a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Many today think you can allow children to change their genders. God said, I created them male and female. And they are beautiful in his sight. And he says that marriage is one man, one woman covenant of love and commitment. And also the truth that there is no sin that Jesus can't forgive. But before you can be forgiven, you have to face the truth of your sin. The final point today is that freedom comes when we walk in obedience. It says here we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And that's a great translation because the verb is in the present continuous ongoing tense. We've talked about this a lot in this book, so I don't have to cover it a lot here, but it's not saying that a person that's a true believer never sins, because that would contradict 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. It would contradict 1 John 1, where he says, if you say you're without sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in us. What it means is that you don't make a habit of sinning. You're not comfortable in sin. That's what it's saying, because you have a new nature, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Now, if you sin, you're troubled by it, and you quickly turn from it. That's what it's saying. The Amplified Bible gets it right when it says this. We know, absolutely, that anyone born of God does not deliberately and knowingly practice committing sin. And then in John Stott's commentary on 1 John, he says this, the tense of the verb is present and implies continuity, habit, permanence. This is good. He expresses the truth, not that he cannot ever slip into acts of sin, but rather that he does not persist in it habitually or live in sin. The new birth results in new behavior. Did you get that? The new birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. <laughs> this is good but they cannot live together in harmony. You see the distinction there. It's, he's not saying you don't sin, but he's saying your new nature doesn't want to sin. And when you do sin, you don't want to live in it habitually. You want to quickly repent and get back to who you are. Now, you know, we often think of obedience in a negative light. Well, to obey God, to walk with Jesus, I can't have any fun. I got to give up the things I really want to do. And i got to live this boring life. No. Obedience to God is so positive. Look at what you get to do. You get to obey God. You get to walk in His will. You get to experience the fullness of the Spirit. You get to enjoy righteousness in Jesus. You get to be in the family of God. You get to have His Word, which is truth. You get to be guided by the Holy Spirit. You get to be free from your past. There's so much about obedience that is positive and awesome and wonderful. Walk in that. Walk in that. All right, now we come to this little phrase, and we'll conclude with this. What does it mean, sin unto death? Because we're talking about obedience, and we're talking about walking with the Lord, and we're talking about how a true Christian lives in, 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 in obedience and wants to please God. 
But then there's this little section earlier that says the sin that leads to death. What does that mean? What does it mean, that sin that leads to death? And then furthermore, it complicates it because he says, if, if somebody commits that, don't even pray for them. Did you catch that? Some commentators say this is one of the hardest verses in all the Bible to properly interpret. All right, I'm going to give you four possibilities. First of all, it could be a sin in the Old Testament that was justifiably punished by death or capital punishment. And he's basically saying don't pray for them to be punished because they've got to be punished by death. They committed an offense that is worthy of capital punishment. Don't even bother to pray that they won't be punished by death. Not, not don't pray for their soul, but, but don't pray that they could be eliminated from that punishment because that's the just due for their, what they did. I don't believe that's what this is saying. Number two, sin in the New Testament that was severely disciplined by God by taking their life. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira withheld part of their offering. And what happened? They were stricken dead. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the man who was committing sexual immorality, Paul said, I deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might still be saved. Serious stuff. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty says that some, because they misused the Lord's Supper, were killed. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. So it could be the sin in the New Testament that was severely disciplined by God. And again, like the other option, he's saying they're going to die, so can't pray that that won't happen. I don't think that's what it's saying. Number three, a Christian who commits apostasy and loses his or her salvation. I don't believe that's what it's teaching because this book has affirmed over and over that you can have assurance of salvation. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. He just said that earlier in this chapter. Here's what I believe it's teaching, and this is held by John Stott, Wayne Grudem, Chuck Smith, and a host of others. It's the sin of repeatedly rejecting Jesus. It's the sin of the false teachers, especially, who consistently rejected Jesus and taught against the truth of Jesus. And that there can come a time... When a person has so crossed the line of repeatedly rejecting Jesus that basically there's no hope for them anymore. And in such a case, John would say, it's no use even praying for them. Now, I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. <laughs> so let me give you this quote. There are multitudes of such sins, but there is a place beyond which if a man passes in sin, he becomes henceforth dead. That's what I just explained. And utterly insensible. And he'll never be quickened and never be saved. It's almost like the Romans 1 where it says God gives them over to a depraved mind. His patience has run out. They've had their last chance. If we knew a man to be in such a condition as that, the apostles' words would apply to such a case. Don't pray for him. Then I love this last part. But as we cannot tell that any man is in that condition, it is well for us to ask for grace to be able to pray for every sinner, however great his sin may be. <laughs> Isn't that good? So in other words, if they get to this place then no, no use praying for them because they're beyond the point of repentance. But do we really ever know if somebody gets to that place? Probably not because we don't have all knowledge and all discernment. So just assume nobody is at that place and keep praying for them. <laughs> I love that. Spurgeon just nailed it. <laughs> and it kind of makes you kind of go, hmm, I don't need to focus on this verse much anymore. First of all, it's a very obscure verse. There's no other place in the New Testament. It's hard to interpret correctly. 
And so I just take Spurgeon's view. Hey, I'm not going to know if anybody ever reaches that point, so I'm just going to pray for everybody. Unfortunately, we don't have time for Q&A. Actually, no, we'll take five minutes. All right, so let's do five minutes. So worship team, if you want to go ahead and come up, because we, we will just do this for five minutes. Where'd that other mic go? Raise your hand. Don't do the questions on the text, please, because I won't have time to check my phone. And I know within a room this size, there'll be, there'll be a few from the room. All right. You have a question, raise your hand. And then we'll get ready to partake. Hey, Pastor David. Hey, brother. Hey, uh, so I got a friend who's... Um, claims Christ, uh, but something that would be considered a sin for, you know, most people, marijuana, like how would you, but he's completely convinced in his heart, it's not a sin, you know, used for, for pain relief and stuff, but like, uh, you know, I know there's other things where some people consider sin, right. some don't, right. but this is like, seem like universal not to fill your body with, you know, mind altering. Yeah. So how would you approach it? Yeah, so it's kind of one of those gray areas. We don't have something. Actually, if it's illegal in the state, then we do have a scripture. They're breaking the law, just like underage drinking. You know, that'd be covered because they're breaking the law. But then they can say, well, I'm going to live in Colorado. It's legal there, man. <laughs> and so what's the deal? And then I think, man, you definitely go to that the earlier part, pray. Ask God to open their heart. If you have a good enough relationship where you can really talk and it's not going to be seen as antagonistic or you're you know, attacking them, then I think you can just offer suggestions. You know, I'm concerned, brother, because, you know, you're taking something into your body, and your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit that I think could easily become addictive. That would be a thing. You know, I have a whole sermon on what do you do when you don't know what to do. And it's basically biblical principles in the gray areas. And so there I would apply the passage where Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I'll be mastered by nothing. And so if it's mastering them, if it's controlling them, then obviously they've crossed that line. So you go to biblical principles for those gray areas in such cases. Great question. Just wondering if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit might be considered in this. Thank you. That's in my notes. I didn't cover it. I believe my, my fourth, where I take that, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I interpret the sin that leads to death as repeatedly rejecting Jesus, that is the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the only way to be forgiven is through Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you can't be forgiven. And so you've repeatedly resisted the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to bring you to salvation, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You've resisted the Holy Spirit who's trying to draw you to Christ. So yes, I believe the sin unto death is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is repeatedly rejecting Jesus. You can't be forgiven because you don't have Christ in your life. Thank you. Yeah, so in the context, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when they attributed a work of Jesus to the work of Satan. That's the immediate context, is when they said, oh, you're doing these miracles. You're casting demons out by the power of Beelzebub. And then he mentions the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Very good. What does it mean when it says sin that doesn't lead to death? Because isn't wages of sin is death? Yeah, so all sin leads to spiritual death. I think it's... It's the sin that doesn't lead to death is the sin that doesn't lead to a physical discipline of death. So it's not so serious that it would lead to God disciplining that person by literally bringing their life to an end, like that of Ananias Sapphira, like that of those who misused the Lord's Supper, like that of the one in 1 Corinthians 5. 
So again, sin is sin, but there are some sins that are more serious because they have greater consequences. You get that? It's not saying that, 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 I mean, all sin is a violation of God's holy standard and can only be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But there are some sins that have greater consequences than others. You know, Jesus said anger toward another is at the same level before God as murder because you're murdering your brother when you're angry. But clearly there's, it's not the same in consequences as murder. You're not going to go to jail for the rest of your life or get capital punishment for just being angry in your heart towards somebody. You actually take their life physically, then there's a higher level of consequence for that. All right, let's do one more. I got one right here if I could, please. Okay, two more. This one and that one, that'll be it. Go ahead. Earlier, excuse me, you said earlier that um, we shouldn't use this verse to uh, discern what people are, um, I have a microphone, so my mind's blinking. Because all scriptures, God breathed and useful for uh, teaching and rebuking, and he said that we shouldn't use the verse to discern who is living in that um, type of sin where we shouldn't pray for them. So what is the utility of this verse? Then what? I'm sorry? What's the utility of this verse? If okay, I'll tell you. And I was, was going to actually use that to end the message. The, the utility of the verse is sin is very serious. That we should all shake in holy reverence today of a verse like this because it points to how serious sin is. And that you be sure you are not guilty of repeatedly rejecting Jesus. If you're here today or you're watching online and you have heard the gospel, you have heard the gospel, you know that the Holy Spirit has been after you. People have invited you and loved you and prayed for you and you continually say, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't want Christ in my life. I'm not going to surrender to God. That is a very serious thing. I can't tell you if you ever cross that line Let's hold that. Let's end here. Let's end here. I can't tell you if you cross that line. And I pray you haven't. And I don't believe you have or you wouldn't be here today. I don't believe you have or you wouldn't be hearing online. But I'm telling you, God is saying today, come to me. Repent. My arms are open. I can't promise you how much longer his arms are going to be open. We don't know we're not guaranteed another day. And so what I think, great question, Will, thank you. It points to how serious sin is and how serious it is that we surrender our lives completely to Jesus. That we know, that we know, that we know, that we know that we're a child of the living God and we've been born again by the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus. And so now... We're going to come before communion. If you want your children to partake, you are dismissed to go get them. Kathy's ready to receive you over there if you want your children to be a part of this today. Folks, this is a time of serious reflection. Today we're going to partake in a way we never have before. We're going to pass the elements. You're going to stay seated. The ushers in a moment are going to pass the bread. Hold that bread. Hold that bread. They're going to then pass the juice. Hold that juice. And then we're going to partake together, symbolic of our incredible unity that we have in Jesus today. 
But it's so important today that you know that you know that you know that you put your trust in Christ alone. That you are saved by the blood of Jesus. So today, if you are not convinced that you are Christian, that you are not sure that you are born again, let's bow our heads. I invite you right now, if this prayer would express the desire of your heart, it's not the prayer that saves you, it's your faith and trust in Christ alone, but prayer is a way of expressing faith. I implore you to pray this. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I put my trust in you alone. I acknowledge that I've been going my own way apart from you. Today, I want to go toward you. Lord, I surrender. I receive you in my life. I receive you in my life. Come in and take control. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Some of you that know that you're a Christian, but you've been living for self. You've drifted. You're believing lies. You're not surrendered to Jesus. He's Savior, but He's not Lord. Today, repent. Turn. Just say, Lord, I, I, I surrender to you. You know those areas of your life that you might need to just say, Lord, I give you this. I give you this. Surrender it all to Him. He's so worthy. As the men begin to pass the bread, if you need gluten-free bread, it's right here. So you need to come up and get your gluten-free bread if you need it, because this is not gluten-free. So if you need gluten-free bread, come and get it. Hold the elements, and I'll come back up and lead us to partake as we worship the Lord.